Well, good morning again, One Ancient Hope. My name is Matt. If you are streaming and I haven't been able to meet you, I am uh, the interim pastor here. Uh, last weekend, my wife and son and I got to go to Kansas City to visit um, a close family friend and to eat um, far too much barbecue. It was wonderful. And it was exciting to watch the service here, to get to participate in the same way that most of this church does, which is online, and to hear Will Bankston preach. Uh, I didn't get to meet him that weekend because we were out of town, but I, I did get to have a phone call with him this Wednesday, and he just seems like a delightful guy. I mean, we had too much in common where we ended up talking for like two hours. Um, and so I was able to spend an hour less on this sermon than I thought, but that's fine. Uh, when I accepted the call to be interim pastor here, we knew that it was going to be a uh, temporary position. And um, we kind of knew that going into it, which, which is made it a scary choice to, to do it, but it also made it a lot of fun. And we'll be here at least until April with you. And I wish I could tell you that I knew exactly what's next for our family, but it's still an unknown. There's still uh, not complete clarity. And really, that's been the last two years of our life. So we're getting a bit used to it. Um, but I really believe that God is doing something unique in Sarah and I's lives where we're having to trust him and only knowing kind of the next few steps. I've heard people talk, uh, I forget who originally said this, but this idea of there's this giant mountain and it's covered in fog. And so you kind of take a couple steps and you can see just what's in front of you. And the whole time you're wishing, I wish all the fog would just go away. But if it did, you'd see the entire mountain and likely go home, turn around and go back. And I feel like that's a bit of what God is doing in our lives but I am excited for whatever it is God has in store for you here in Iowa city. So as your current pastor, I do ask for your prayer. Would you pray for our family for what's next, that we would have the, the gift of faith and courage to follow wherever it is. God is leading us. My question for us today as a church, as I ask you to pray for courage for me to follow is who do you follow? Now, we could talk, of course, about social media. I mean, who do you follow on Instagram? Who do you follow on Twitter, perhaps on TikTok? Who do you follow? Maybe you just follow friends and family. You know, you want to see the cute picture of your niece, you want to see what they're up to, or maybe you follow celebrities, you want to know what's going on there, or comedians to get a bit of laughter into your day, or maybe you love to follow social influencers, see what they're doing. Maybe you follow your favorite chefs to get good recipes, or your restaurants to know, are they doing indoor dining just yet? Maybe you follow political commentators, or figures or institutions. 
Now, whatever or whoever you follow, of course, is what ends up on your feed when you open the app and scroll through. These are the images or the words that you're seeing. And we would all be pretty naive to say that when we open those apps, they don't affect our day. They inevitably shape our day based on the content that we consume. I mean, if you only follow people who post kittens and puppies, your day will be affected by it. Maybe for the better, maybe for the worse. Who do you follow? But I see some of you who look like you've checked out, so perhaps you're not social media people. That's fine. What news source do you follow? What TV or radio stations do you have favorited? Right? Are you a Fox or CNN or NBC or BBC or NPR follower? Do you subscribe to the Washington Post or the New York Times or maybe more Washington Examiner or Wall Street Journal for you? Because your perception of what's going on in the world will be shaped by these things. You are being, in religious terminology, discipled by these things. Not just on an informational or sort of intellectual level, but on an affective, an emotional level also. In fact, if you, like many, are feeling high levels of anxiety during the pandemic, one of the practical pieces of advice that we see psychologists giving is basically to turn off the TV or stop following the social media accounts or channels that only seem to report the death, destruction, or depravity of humanity because it's having an effect on people. We're all followers of something or someone. And in our media-saturated world, to follow Anything at all is to be affected, to be shaped and formed and influenced by images and narratives and ideas. We all follow something. There is no sort of stationary standing on neutral ground. It's all contested space getting you to budge or move one way or another. Well, we're in the middle of this liturgical season called Epiphany, and it's a season about a revelation, a manifestation of who Jesus is. And for most of Epiphany this year, the lectionary, the the scripture readings that we have read to us, they have us in Mark chapter one. So two weeks ago, we remembered our baptisms alongside the baptism of Jesus in Mark 1 verses 4 to 11. And then today we pick up in verses 14 to 20. And if you're wondering where are we going, the next two chapters, or the next two Sundays, I'm sorry, will also be in Mark chapter 1. So if you are wondering, how can I spend some time digging deeper into where we're going on Sundays? I would say to slowly, prayerfully, meditatively take in as much of Mark chapter 1 as you can this next month. And the season of Epiphany, as I've said, it begins with some magi. 
which basically were some Eastern astrologers, and they are following a star. As they follow the star, they're led to Jesus, and he is revealed to them as the Savior of the world. So they fall and worship him. They followed a star, and it had massive implications for their lives. Again, whoever we follow will disciple us. They or it will give shape and meaning to our lives. And again, we all follow something. And I don't know about you, but sincerely, I want to follow Jesus. Jesus is the most compelling person I've ever come across. And so that's who I would choose to follow given the opportunity. And maybe, just maybe as someone here or watching this, you're compelled by Jesus as well. The good news is that Jesus's invitation to the fishermen in our text today is to you and I as well. Come, follow me. Jesus's invitation to follow is to all of us. Everyone here, sinner, saint, passionate, apathetic, whatever your story is, Jesus' invitation to follow is to all of us. And whatever or whoever we follow affects all of us. It changes what we love and pursue. It changes who we love. It changes even how we love and live our lives. Again, Jesus's invitation to follow is to all of us, every single one. And following Jesus affects all of us, every single part. Now, we always have to remember when we read the Gospels, that Jesus was a Jew. He's Jewish, and so were the first disciples. Now this, if you would have told me this when I first became a Christian, I would have said, no, Jesus is Christian, obviously. I mean, this whole thing we're doing is after him. But Jesus was Jewish. Jesus knew the Torah well. The Torah is God's word spoken through Moses in the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, and Numbers. And when the Old and New Testaments, if you read them, you'll, you'll hear stuff referred to as the law a lot. And that's referring to the Torah, the law of Israel. And it's law different than we think of law. And this can become problematic when we're reading the scriptures. We just think about um, what a lawyer studies law, a list of rules and regulations and the proper punishments for breaking those rules. And while the Torah does contain some of that, that's not what it primarily is. A better translation would be not just law, but teachings or instructions or simply way, Torah as the way. The Jewish people believed that the Torah was the way. It was the truth. It was the life. 
They still do believe that. They believe the best way to live is how the Torah says to live. It's the way to life. Remember now, in Israel's story, they experience what it's like to live in a foreign land. In fact, most of Israel's story in the Hebrew scriptures, they're sort of foreigners, either as slaves in Egypt or as foreigners traveling through the wilderness without a home, or later on as exiles kicked out of their home, living under the reign of other countries and places. And then again, even in their homeland, because they're under foreign occupation. So they know what it's like to be a minority. That experience is familiar to them. And so as the minority, they know how important it is to remember their story and to know the way of being in the world given to them directly from God, the Torah. And so for a community that's the minority, the Jewish people, the Torah was seen as central to life. If you lost it, you lost everything. You lost your story. You lost who you are. So most Jewish kids in the first century would have begun school around six years old probably in a local synagogue with a local rabbi. And the first level of education, it lasted until the student was about 10 years old, so four years, and it was called Bet Sefer in Hebrew, which means house of the book. And they would study the Torah. If you've ever heard or read Psalm 119, you've heard the psalmist say to God about the Torah, your words are like honey to my mouth. And so sometimes in Bet Sefer, in this first level of education for Jewish kids, rabbis would literally give the students honey to help them associate the words of God with the most delicious, exquisite thing they could possibly imagine. Sometimes they'd even put it on the pages of the book. So in Bet Sefer, at six years old, students would begin memorizing the Torah. And by age 10, they would know the whole thing by heart. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, all memorized. Now this, of course, was before the printing press. And so each community or town, they might have one copy of the Torah in the synagogue. So it's not like you could go home and sort of read a little bit every night at your leisure. This is why they would memorize it. Memorization and oral tradition was the only option to actually be shaped by these stories and truths about God. Now we also need to understand that to be a rabbi who taught the Torah at this time was to be one of the most respected members of the community. Only the smartest students who knew the text inside and out could become a rabbi. Right? Not everyone could do it. This is like a PhD in philosophy or, or even a medical doctor. It's like top of the top we consider them. 
So by age 10, there'd be this major change in schooling, right? You went through the first house, these first four years. And some students, they demonstrated this ability to memorize and understand the scriptures in ways that other students couldn't. These students went on to the next level of education, Bet Talmud, the house of learning. And this lasted for about another four years until you were 14 or so. And if you didn't make it into Bet Talmud, you'd continue learning the family trade, right? So maybe your family made sandals or maybe they had a vineyard and you made wine or they were farmers or they were fishermen, whatever it is, you'd apprentice with your parents and carry on the family trade. And for some people, I'm sure this was a relief, right? They're thanking God that I don't need to memorize more stuff. My head feels like it's going to explode at this point. But for many, this would have been disheartening. You would have been told, essentially, you're not good enough. The best of the best, however, they'd continue their education in Bet Talmud, and they'd memorize the rest of the Hebrew scriptures, So by 14 or so, the top students had all of it memorized. Genesis through Malachi, 39 books of the Bible memorized. And a lot of this still takes place. If you were to go to um, a yeshiva, a Jewish seminary, um, most of the Jewish students would have most of the scriptures memorized even upon entering the school. So in Bet Talmud, students would also start learning about different rabbis' interpretations of Scripture. So you wouldn't just learn Scripture. At this point, you're learning what other people think about Scripture and who has said what about what. You'd be learning the text, but also what other people said about the text, learning the commentary. You'd be learning not just how to recite the proper information, but how to ask the right questions, right? If you've ever read Luke chapter 2 towards the end, there's this story where Jesus' parents, Joseph and Mary, they're, they're, uh, they're freaking out a bit. They're like, where did Jesus go? And we learn that he's 12 at this point perhaps right in the middle of his Bet Talmud studying. He's at the synagogue. And the text says they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them, and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. Around 14 or 15, at the end of Bet Talmud, At this point, only the best of the best were still studying. And the rest, again, would be learning the family business back at home. Those remaining would now apply to become a well-known rabbi's Talmudim, which we translate as disciple. This would be like applying for residency or uh, something like that. I mean... To be a disciple in this sense was very different than our modern notion of a student. This wasn't sitting at a desk and hearing about information. 
The goal of this disciple wasn't just to know what the rabbi knew, but to be just like the rabbi. It wasn't a transfer of information, but a schooling of formation. And this level of education was called Bet Midrash, the house of study. So a student, having been through the previous school, Bet Talmud, would have learned about what different rabbis say about the text. And they would find one that they really like, and then they would present themselves to the known rabbi and say, Rabbi, I want to become one of your Talmudim, one of your disciples. And different rabbis had different interpretations of how to live out the Torah, of what the way, the truth, and the life actually looked like. And these different interpretations might have had different lists and regulations, and they ended up being referred to as the rabbi's yoke. Uh, I preached on this a, a few months back, but the yoke was what held two oxen together around their necks. And if you'd follow a yoke, you'd become like, you'd follow the way of the more mature oxen. And so these rabbis' interpretations were referred to as their yoke. When you followed a certain rabbi, you were following him because you believed that that rabbi's set of interpretations were closest to what God intended through the scriptures. And when you followed that rabbi, you were taking up that rabbi's yoke. The intent then of having a, of a rabbi having a yoke, again, it wasn't just to interpret words correctly. It was to live them out. When a student applied to a rabbi to become his Talmudin, one of his disciples, he was desiring to take that yoke upon him to learn to do what the rabbi did, to live as that rabbi lived. So if you approached a rabbi and said, I want to follow you, the rabbi would want to know a few things. Can this student do what I do? Can this kid actually spread my yoke? Can this kid be like me? Does this kid have what it takes? And so the rabbi would question the students to get a sense of what they knew. The rabbis were always speaking in questions, which we see in the language of Jesus They'd ask questions about the scriptures, about other interpretations of the scriptures, about other rabbis and prophets and words and phrases and lifestyle choices. Look, the rabbi didn't have time to train a kid who didn't ultimately have what it takes to be able to do what the rabbi did. And if the rabbi decided that the student didn't have what it takes, they'd say to the student, if they were kind, you clearly love God and the Torah, but you cannot become one of my Talmudim. So go home and continue on in the family business. But if the rabbi believed that this kid did have what it took, he would say, come, follow me. The student would more than likely leave their father and mother at this point, leave his synagogue, leave his village and friends, and devote his life to becoming the kind of person 
that his rabbi was. He would give up his whole life just to be like his rabbi. So in our text today, we have a 30-year-old Jesus, which is when a rabbi generally would begin his public teaching and training of disciples. We have a 30-year-old Jesus walking along the Sea of Galilee. And in verse 16, it says, As he walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. When he had gone a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. Does it matter that they're fishermen? Yes, they aren't disciples. They aren't Talmudim. They weren't good enough. They didn't make the cut for any other rabbi. And this is who Jesus calls as his first disciples. Jesus calls the not good enoughs. When Jesus says to Simon, to Andrew, later to James and John, come, follow me. He's saying that regardless of our history, regardless of the ways in which we've failed or fallen short or even intentionally chosen life without God, we too can be Christ's disciples. Jesus says, come, follow me. You can become like me. We can become like Jesus. We can be like Paul in Acts 24, 14, who, who describes himself as a follower of the way. Or like Thomas in John, 15, John 14, verses 5 and 6. We can confess, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? And we can hear Jesus respond, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Jesus is claiming that the best application of the Torah is him. Jesus is claiming that the best way of life is the way he is doing life and that you're invited into it. You and I are invited into it. The sweetness of the scriptures to those rabbinical students is like even more condensed honey in Christ because it is the word made flesh. He is the word made flesh. The way and the truth and the life of the Torah is embodied in the person of Jesus. To be a disciple of this Jesus is to follow him and learn all of his ways letting them shape and form all of ours. And so Jesus' invitation to follow is to all of us, every single one. 
But following Jesus also affects all of us, every single part. Our text today actually begins with Jesus' first words of public ministry. He says, the time has come. And bear in mind that this is Kairos time. This isn't talking about chronological time, the time has come. This is Kairos time. This is divinely appointed heaven and earth overlapping kind of time. The time has come, he says in verse 15. The kingdom of God has come near or it's at hand. It's right here. Repent and believe the good news. Following Jesus always involves repentance. The invitation to come, follow me, given to Simon and Andrew, is so radically life-altering that they drop their nets. Their source of income their careers, their livelihoods laid aside to follow the rabbi Jesus. And when James and John are introduced to us, they're introduced as the sons of Zebedee. This is the one identity marker given to us about them. They are defined by their family lineage. And guess who the text points out they leave behind when they follow Jesus? Father Zebedee is left sitting in the boat with the hired hands. The call of Jesus is so compelling that they leave the one person who has given them identity to follow the rabbi Jesus. The New Testament scholar David Garland, he says, Jesus' call to repent is not a caustic reprimand, but an invitation to switch allegiances. He offers a summons, welcoming people to respond to God's initiative. God is unleashing a new power that makes repentance possible. Repentance is an invitation to switch allegiances. It's an invitation to change our entire direction back to God. It's a turning and a returning and a returning again and again and again back to the only one worth following. Just like our baptism isn't about a one-time event, but about this continual remembering and living into those vows, so too following Jesus is not about a one-time event or decision to follow Jesus. It's about a daily, hourly, sometimes down to the minute decision to repent, to turn from the disordered desires and ways we choose to live, 
to leave behind the things we've clung to instead of God and to follow Jesus again. There's one author who says that sometimes repentance just looks like a clenched fist slowly opening and turning itself to God to surrender our will, our hearts, even our livelihoods and family identities over to God and say, I will follow you. And Jesus tells us the kingdom of God has come near. The kingdom of God is at hand. Will you unclench yours to receive it? And Jesus isn't just the one who announces the kingdom. There is no kingdom without a king. And Jesus is the king of this kingdom. And repentance is switching our allegiance back to that king. In the Gospels, as I close, I just want to remind us that in the Gospels, Jesus' crucifixion is depicted as his enthronement, as king of the Jews and king of the world. And of course, we'll dive deeper into that story in a few weeks as we enter into Lent. But for now, I want you to notice, pull to mind again, if you're familiar with these stories, that in the last moments of Jesus' earthly life, he's given a crown a crown of thorns, but a crown that's placed on his head. And he's draped in purple, the royal color, in this royal kingly robe. And he's exalted, but not on a throne, on a cross that's lifted as he's stretched out. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we're thankful for your words to us. And we're even more thankful for your word made flesh. For Jesus who not only shows what the way, the truth, and the life are, but makes a way by the truth, by his life, that we may receive life. I pray this morning, Lord, for myself and for this church that we would never cling too tightly to the things that we use to define ourselves, that we would uh, miss out from opening our hands to receive who you say we are and to receive what you say is true. This morning, Lord, allow us to enter back in to the kingdom, to turn once more and follow Jesus over and above every other name. In the name of Jesus and the power of the Spirit, we pray. Amen.